Well, as the band is making their way to their seats, just a few things uh, just want to bring to your attention. First of all, today is a very special day. Uh, Ashley Melendez, our secretary, it's her birthday. And so she's going to be at the back door with Dana shaking hands after the service. So on the way out, if you just would have wish her a happy birthday, we're so glad that she's part of our staff and our team, and uh, just wish her a happy birthday this morning. She loves me for mentioning this. She's giving me the stare of death right now. So, uh, but, but she's really excited I mentioned that. But we're happy birthday, Ashley. We're excited to have you as part of our family. Other thing I wanted to, uh, just to thank you for uh, this morning is I want to thank you for all the cards and the texts and the conversations that you have uh, sent me and, and communicated with me over the loss of my grandmother a few weeks ago. It really meant a lot uh, to me and to my family, your care and your concern, your prayers. Uh, she was an incredible lady, and I will miss her very much, uh, but she's in a better place, and uh, I am so, so very thankful for that. And so, But I just wanted to say thank you for your kindness and your care. Uh, I really, really appreciated that, and my family really, really appreciated that as well. The last thing that I wanted to mention is Pastor Dick is in Canada today, in Ottawa, and he is actually preaching probably right now, and uh, so uh, I think it's important that we remember to pray for him. He's been up there on doing a, a conference with a mission board that he serves on with a good friend of his, and I told him that, that, that we would be praying for him this morning and that he would be able to communicate in Canadian, which means that he would add an A to the end of every sentence. And so then he'll be all right. But, uh, uh, but let's go to the Lord in prayer and just, and just pray for Pastor Dick and pray for us this morning as we open up his word together. Father, thank you for your goodness that you have shown us. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather here and sing about your amazing love that manifests itself in the life of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the great truth that we've already sang this morning. And, and Lord, we just come before you today as your family, your church here in Elizabethtown, Lord. And we want to lift you up and, and to praise your name. Lord, we're thankful that you've promised where two or three are gathered, you are there with us, Lord. And we pray that everything that's said and done this morning might bring you honor and glory. Lord, we think of Pastor Dick and thankful for this opportunity that he has in Ottawa this morning. And as he preaches this morning, Lord, we pray that you would enable him and just give him boldness to share the truth that you've laid on his heart. And Lord, give him safety as he travels uh, back um, this this afternoon and this evening to, uh, to Pennsylvania, Lord. And, and Lord, we pray that as we look into your word this morning, Lord, you've told us that your word is living and active. And Lord, it's my prayer this morning that your Holy Spirit might activate this word, your word in our lives. That we wouldn't just be here to listen, but Lord, because of what you've communicated to us today, that we'd go out and live it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, there are no shortcuts to success, right? Success takes sacrifice. And I don't know about you, but I love shortcuts, and I really don't like sacrifice a whole lot. Uh, maybe it's just me, maybe you like sacrifice, but, but I think our world doesn't like sacrifice either, and I think we see this idea of, you know, loving shortcuts in the area of physical fitness, don't we? 
We're looking for the latest and greatest phase to get a shortcut to, to be fit. And one of the areas I think that we see this in and, and is all the things that have been created to, to tone our bodies, especially our abs, right? How many people here want, you know, a six-pack for their abs, you know, just a toned stomach? Well, you know, in our world, maybe you're familiar with some of these, not because you have them at your house, You've just seen them at Walmart, at the, as seen on TV. But check out this picture. Uh, this is the ab cruncher. The ab cruncher. I'm not looking for a hand if you have this or not. But, uh, uh, but uh, yeah, the ab cruncher, what it promises in five minutes a day, you can have this amazing toned and flat stomach. The ab cruncher. That looks like a great thing, doesn't it? Because five minutes a day, a flat stomach, I can do that, right? How about this next one? The ab rocket, the ab rocket. And, and so this, this one is even better because, you know, it promises in three minutes a day you'll have that flat stomach. And look, I mean, it looks quality. It looks like it's really going to work, right? looks like it, you find it on the space shelter or something like that. Or, or, you know, and so, so you have the ab rocket. And then finally, how about this one? This is my favorite, the ab belt, because we've gone from five minutes a day to three minutes a day to now you don't even need to exercise. <laughs> you just wear it for two weeks and it'll stimulate your middle. Some of us have a little bit more than others to stimulate. And at the end of two weeks, you'll be more trim. You'll be more fit. These are some crazy contraptions, right? But this isn't a new phenomenon because the 1950s brought us this. The ab, I mean, the, the, the belt vibrating machine, right? I don't know, 1950s, that's a, I wasn't born in the 1950s, but I remember my first time I saw one of these. I went to Taylor University to visit my brother-in-law. He was living in Sammy Morris dorm, and I pushed the button on the elevator, and it opened up, and there in the elevator was this vibrating belt machine. And I thought, well, this is very strange. Why is this in the elevator? And so I thought, well, maybe they're just multitasking. As they ride the elevator, they're trying to firm their stomachs. It was very, very unusual. Or how about this one? In the 1800s, a German inventor inv invented this ab crunch machine. Now, doesn't that look pleasant? These two things, you know, inserted into your stomach to, uh, to I guess, to, to make them move. Instead of you moving your muscles, you have this machine to move your muscles. It's ridiculous, isn't it? But the reality is we are all look for shortcuts because we don't like sacrifice. But there are no shortcuts to success. Success takes sacrifice. It's true with physical fitness. You know, you look at all these things, and it doesn't say about, you know, hey, just do this, nothing about what you eat or any other activity or anything like that. We just want the five minutes, the three minutes, the two weeks, and we get the results. It's true with physical fitness, but you know what? It's also true with the believer's spiritual fitness. There are no shortcuts to success. Success takes sacrifice. Grab your Bibles or your devices and turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. And this morning we're going to look at what Paul has to say about a life of sacrifice in these first few verses in Romans chapter 12. In Romans chapter 12, starting with verse 1, it goes, therefore. Right in the beginning it says, therefore. Therefore means because of or in reply to. And so it helps us to, you know, we see that we think, okay, what, what is therefore 
therefore. And so it forces us to kind of look back and review what has gone on before, what, what has been said in the previous verses. And so we're going to review here what Paul is saying. And I don't know about you, but when I was in high school, I had Mr. Bullock for 11th grade history. And there's a few things you need to know about Mr. Bullock. First of all, my parents had him in high school. Yep. Second thing, his teaching didn't get better with age. Nope. And finally, Mr. Bullock had a reputation. All the students knew it. That there's only one day that you needed to pay attention in Mr. Bullock's class. The rest of the days in that unit, you could tune him out, but the one day you needed to pay attention, review day. Now, students, you don't have any teachers like this, I'm sure. You pay attention all the time because your teachers were better than my teachers. But in Mr. Bullock's class, you didn't have to pay attention any day, just review day. Because on review day, he went through question by question every thing that was going to be on the test. So it was beneficial for you to pay attention during review day. As a matter of fact, at home in my closet, I have a box, a shoebox full of notes from Dana when she was in 11th grade. And she told me this week that she wrote a lot of those notes in Mr. Bullock's class, not on review day. And so, and so here as we get to Romans chapter 12, we see therefore, and it kind of makes us look back and review the few verses that has preceded this, and maybe you're like me in Mr. Bullock's history class, and maybe you've tuned out as we've gone through the first 11 chapters of Romans, or maybe you just forgot. And so we're going to look at these few verses here, Paul's doxology summary of all the great doctrine that we have covered in the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. So look at Romans 11, verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has ever first given to him and has to be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And as we review here, I think there's a few things we need to recognize that Paul is telling us in these few verses at the end of chapter 11. The first thing is this. God is the source of all knowledge and wisdom. God is the source of all knowledge and wisdom. Wisdom's the co cognitive discovery or learning and knowledge is the, is the rational, the ability to, to rationally think or apply learning to life. And I don't know about you, but when it's important to go to the right source for wisdom and knowledge, isn't it? Like if I, was, if, if I have a ministry question, I seek out Pastor Dick for his wisdom and knowledge. Now, if I had a plumbing crisis at my house, I'd call John Hickson because he has the wisdom and knowledge how to deal with that. If I had a carpentry need at my house, like I'm soon going to have more kids than bedrooms, uh, I'd call Jason Winters to come help me figure out where am I going to fit this next kid into our house. If I have a medical concern or question, I, I'd, I'd approach Dr. Ed Robles and ask for his counsel. You see, it's important that when we have a need or when we have uh, some, some desire to get some knowledge and wisdom, it's important we go to the right source. And here Paul tells us God is the right source for all wisdom and knowledge. Not Google, but God. 
It's amazing how our world has changed, isn't it? In any conversation, when we get to something we don't know, what do you do? I tell you what I do. I pull out my phone and go to Google. I type it in and try to find the answers. And unfortunately, we kind of live in this society, don't we now, that we think Google knows everything. Well, here Paul tells us that God is the source of all wisdom and knowledge. He's not lacking. He doesn't need any lectures from us. I go to God for help. He doesn't come to me for my help. I go to him for his help. I'm the one lacking, and I need to learn from him. So God's the source of all wisdom and knowledge, Paul tells us here at the end of Romans 11. He also tells us that God is a gracious and good giver. As we think about all that we've gone through in the first 11 chapters of Romans, God has graciously graciously given us the gospel. And it's not because we deserved it, It's not because of our righteousness, it's in spite of our sinfulness. God has given us the gospel. We were lost and hopeless. And we are lost and hopeless without the gospel. We owe him everything and he doesn't owe us anything. We can't earn our way to heaven, we can't earn our salvation. He freely gives it to us through faith in Jesus Christ. He is a generous and good giver. The final thing that I think it tells us here is God is the sovereign creator and sustainer of all things. He and he alone gets the credit and deserves the spotlight. Have you ever gotten congratulated for something that you didn't do? What'd you do in that situation? What did you do when you got congratulated for something you didn't do? Did you keep quiet and keep the compliment? Or did you come clean and direct the, direct the compliment to the person who deserved it? If you ever kept quiet and got recognized for something that you didn't do, for got this, this glory that you didn't deserve, you know what happens. It wears off, doesn't it? You start to feel guilty because you didn't deserve the recognition. You didn't deserve the glory that God gave you, I mean, that, that that person gave you. And so here it tells us at the end of Romans, Paul reminds us that God is great and greatly to be praised. He's the one that deserves the glory. And the amen here at the end is the exclamation point. It tells us it's true, it's sure. And so as I look at these few verses, it, the thing that, that sticks out to me is this, God's greatness and generous should cause us to give him glory. His greatness and generous should generousness should cause us to give him glory. He and he alone deserves the glory. When anything good happens in our life, we should give him the glory because he's the one that deserves it. I don't deserve any glory. He deserves the glory. And so we should give him the glory. In my Bible, it titles this section, A Hymn of Praise. It was to to be sung, it was to be recited, And it was repeated to praise God with our lips. It was repeated to praise God with our lips. But it's interesting that Paul doesn't stop there with just praising God with our lips. That's essential. It's sometimes easy, isn't it? But it's not enough. It's not enough. So as we move from the end of Romans 11 to the beginning of Romans 12, we see Paul goes from praising God with our lips to praising God with our lives. And true worship involves both. True worship involves both. 
So we've reviewed what the end of Romans 11. Now let's look at the beginning of Romans 12. And right away we see Paul identifies who he's talking to. He says, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters. Paul is calling and challenging fellow Christians. He's calling and and challenging fellow Christians. Urge communicates the idea of continuously asking or encouraging or inviting. And fellow brothers and sisters, they're fellow believers in Jesus Christ. They're they're, They're Paul's spiritual siblings in God's family. And so Paul says, I urge you, brothers and sisters. Kind of reminds me of a coach who cares for his players, right? who comes alongside them and he's coaching them up and he's trying to get them to focus on, on this goal or to be successful and meet this goal on, with, on the team or in their sport. And caring coaches call for people's commitment, right? If you've ever had a good coach, he was probably a good coach because he cared about you, but he called for your commitment to the team, to the sport. And when I think about caring coaches, I think about this guy, John Wooden. I never got to see John Wooden coach, but I, but I read a lot of books about him. I've watched a lot of specials about him, and the thing that amazes me about John Wooden is he just wasn't a great coach. He was like a great father figure to his players. He was this amazing man that cared about them, not just to be successful on the basketball court, which they were, but he wanted them to be successful in life. This is when the the court at UCLA was dedicated to him, and there's over 70 of his players around him with big smiles on his face, showing the love that they have for their coach. In in, In the specials and interviews with his players, the thing that strikes me is they always say how Coach Wooden loved them. He cared about them, not just on the basketball court, but in life. And it talks of all these players that they'd go back to see Coach They'd want to spend time with them, and they share about how he, he cared about them, and he encouraged them to be the best that they could be. He gave them guidance for their lives. Well, here in Romans 12, we see Coach Paul is coming alongside his players, fellow Christians, and he is urging, he's encouraging them to do something. He's, he's telling them to, to, to practice something constantly in their lives, and so what is his request? Again, let's look back at verse 1. It says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Sacrifice. Yikes. It's not a very popular word, is it? We live in a selfish society, and sacrifice is kind of like a swear word. It's, it's unnecessary. It's undesirable. It's not something we enjoy doing. And Paul calls Christians to sacrifice. And when I think about sacrifice, I don't know about you, but I think painful. I don't think privilege. I think painful. And this is a very familiar verse for some of us. Maybe for some of us it's not that familiar. But it doesn't matter how familiar it is, we need to be faithful to it. It's important we're faithful to it. So Paul says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Through faith in Jesus Christ, a Christian's eternal soul belongs to God through salvation. Our eternal soul dwells in this temporary body. 
A believer's soul or inner man already belongs to God, and now Paul says God wants our outer man too. He says offer, to make available, to make accessible. And our bodies is talking about our whole self, your total person. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's some pretty intense instructions here, isn't it? But you know what? It's not the first place in the book of Romans that we see this kind of information given to believers. Look at, with me to Romans 6, 11 to 13. It'll be on the screen here. Romans 6, 11 to 13. Paul says this, In the same way, count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body as the, so that you obey its evil desires. Don't offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. See here in Romans 6, Paul was concerned what believers do with their bodies. Do we offer them as an instrument of sin, or do we offer them as an instrument of righteousness? He challenges us to submit to a life of surrender and not a life of withholding. That's what a, that's what a living sacrifice does. Living communicates the idea of continuous or constant action. Paul is encouraging us believers that as long as we're alive, as long as we're breathing, we should be constantly continuing to sacrifice. And sacrifice describes making offerings to God. Tim Keller, in his commentary on Romans, talked about sacrifice. This is what he said. Paul is using temple terminology and talking of a worshiper who brings an offering. Some offerings in the Old Testament were sin offerings, in which the worshiper was shedding blood and asking for forgiveness. But Jesus is our sin offering. We just sang about that this morning, didn't we? At the cross. So the offering Paul points to is not a sin offering. The second kind of offering was a whole burnt offering, which was a valuable animal from your flock. It had to be without defect because such an animal was expensive. It showed that all that you had was at God's disposal, that you didn't give God the leftovers. The burnt offering was always burnt totally, and it represented total devotion to God. So a living sacrifice continually lives a, lot, lives a life of total devotion to God. He doesn't get any of our life's leftovers. We're totally devoted to him. Jesus talked about this idea of total devotion in Luke chapter 9. Look at it here on the screen with me. It says, Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will, sail, will save it. At the cross, Jesus is calling for us to daily die to ourself. To daily die to ourself. It's a call to sacrificial service to him. A few weeks ago, I came across this definition of sacrifice, and I really liked it. So sacrifice is the giving up of something that we love for something that we love even more. And we love life, don't we? We, we? we love life, but we should be willing to give up the control of our lives because we love Jesus Christ even more. We love him even more.
living a life of sacrifice is not living a life of loss. And I think sometimes that's what we think. It's like, well, if I have to sacrifice, I'm going to lose out. No, we're not going to lose out. It's not a life of loss. It's a life of significance. It's giving all that we have to gain that all that God has in store for us. His ways are best. They're always better than ours. So when Paul says, offer your body as a living sacrifice, he's calling for the complete devotion of a Christian's life to God. It's a readiness to surrender all that we have and all that we are in the service of our Savior. Now, I don't know about you, but I've heard this before, you know, be completely devoted to God. And the question that pops up in my mind is, well, how does that practically happen in my everyday life? How do, how do I live this out in my everyday life? And so I was thinking a little bit about this. And I think if being completely devoted to God in, in our everyday lives involves a willingness to sacrifice for the people in our lives, the plans, the possession, and the position of our lives. I want to talk a little bit about that. Let's think about the people in our lives. Think about the people in your life. How do you view those people? Are they in your life to benefit you? Are, are you in their life to help them? When you get together, do you do all the talking and never do any listening? When you get together to do something, do you make all the decisions and they never get to make any of the decisions? Do you ever ask how they're doing, how you can pray for them, how you can help them? the people in your life, the people you're closest to? Am I devoted to God in my relationships? Am I a living sacrifice that loves, that loves on and leads people to draw closer to Jesus Christ? How do, I, how do I interact with the people in my life? Do I sacrifice for them? How about our plans? How we interact with people affects our schedules, doesn't it? When you look at your calendar, is it all about you? The stuff you want to do? When you look at your family's calendar, is it all about the stuff your family wants to do? Is there any trace on your calendar anywhere where you or your family comes to the assistance of others and tries to help out other people? Are you willing to sacrifice your plans if a need arises that you become aware of? Or do you just keep the plans? figure somebody else will do that. Is your calendar all about you? Am I devoted to God with, with my schedule? Am I a living sacrifice that opens my schedule for opportunities to serve others, my family, my friends, my neighbors, my church? What's your schedule look like? Are you willing to make sacrifices in your schedule? How about our position? My job and the work I do is my offering to God. And God tells us we should work hard and work with all of our heart to honor him in our work. Even on Monday or on Friday. We're supposed to work hard and honor him. Do I give the same effort on my job whether I'm working alone or in a group? Do I only try to do my best when others are looking so they will notice me? 
Am I willing to help my coworkers and my company even though it's not in my job description? Am I willing to sacrifice with those that I work with? Am I devoted to God with my work? Am I a living sacrifice that works hard to help my coworkers, to help my company? Am I willing to sacrifice to do that? Or is it all about me and getting ahead and achieving and being recognized? Final thing is possessions. Am I closed-fisted or open-handed with my resources and my possessions? Is it my stuff or is it God's stuff? Is it my money or is it God's money? Do I only use my resources and possessions to benefit myself? Or do I look to benefit and bless others with the resources that God has given me? Am I completely devoted to God with my resources? Am I a living sacrifice that offers my possessions to help others and not just keeps it for my own benefit? Two Sundays ago, I was at my grandmother's funeral, and... uh, my dad told a story about my, my grandmother who had a neighbor who was an, not, was, wasn't a believer. And I think in this story, as I was thinking about it, 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 it told of my grandmother. And she, there's nothing special about her except her faith in Jesus Christ and her, her desire to live for him. But she used her, her, the people in her life and, and the, the possessions and the position and the plans of her life to reach out to this neighbor. Wasn't a believer. Wasn't interested in anything about God. So my grandmother knew that he liked her graham cracker pie. And so one day she went over to the neighbor's house and she said, listen, I I have a deal for you. She said, for every four times you go to church, I will bake you a graham cracker pie. She's using, you know, her possessions, her position, her, you know, the people of her life and and her calendar because it took a little bit of time to do this. She said, hey, I'm, I'm willing to bake you a graham cracker pie for every four times you go to church. She's, she developed a relationship with this couple and cared about his spiritual destiny. And he said, okay, it's a deal because I really like your graham cracker pie, so what can it hurt? So he started going to church. And guess what happened after a while? One Sunday morning in church, he trusted Jesus as his Savior. A number of years later, he ran into her in town one day, and he came up to her and he said, by the way, Miriam, you owe me 17 graham cracker pies. <laughs> but that's just a, just a simple way of using the people, the, the possession, the plans, and, and, and um, the position of our lives to be a sacrifice in just a small way. Do we do that in our life? Paul ends his request for our total devotion to God by describing it here in in Romans 1. He says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. A living sacrifice is holy. It's it's morally pure. It's set apart for, uh, for a special purpose, to be pure. And pleasing God is being acceptable to God, to give him pleasure or satisfaction. And Tim Keller said this about this idea. The gospel radically reorients our aim in life so that we're no longer hoping and seeking to please others, 
or even ourself, but only God. Only God. And here Paul proclaims that a living sacrifice honors and pleases God because they pursue holiness and purity daily. See, if we're going to be a living sacrifice, we need to be about being pure and holy with our lives. That's what God wants from us, to be pure and to be holy. And to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice is to be completely devoted to God with all areas of our life. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear about a very demanding request like this, there better be a good reason, right? There better be a good reason. Because in my flesh, you know, I want to change this request from Paul to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to sometimes offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And I want to choose the sometimes, don't you? When it's convenient for you, when it's convenient for me, but Paul doesn't say that, does he? This request is so much more challenging than that. And if we're going to respond to such a demanding request, there better be a good reason. And in Romans 12:1, Paul gives us the reason. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. In view of God's mercy. That's the reason to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. Because of, on account of God's mercy, his amazing compassion and concern for us that leads to his active care for us. That's the reason to follow the request, because of God's amazing mercy for us. And through the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, we have seen the mercy of God displayed. We've seen the mess that mankind was in because we are, we're sinners. We were totally depraved. And we saw the miracle of justification, that rebellious sinners can be made right through faith in Jesus Christ. We've learned that through faith there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, that the Holy Spirit lives inside us and leads us and guides us to honor God. We've learned that God works in all things for the good of his children, that nothing can separate us from Jesus' love. God demonstrates his mercy in so many different methods, but I think the main one is in the salvation of man. Paul talks about it in Ephesians 2. Look at it here. As for you, you were dead in transgressions and sin in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But... But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you have been saved. See, God's merciful offer of salvation is the motivation for us to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. That's the reason. We were dead before God's mercy and grace made us alive in Christ Jesus. We were hopeless and helpless. That's the amazing reason to follow the request, to be a living sacrifice. And if we choose to do that, it will produce a result. And results are important, right? 
Can anybody tell me what these two logos have in common here? Not that there's orange in both of them, okay? That's not what I'm looking for here. Terrible football, exactly. They are, they are terrible football teams from the same city, right? The Miami Dolphins and the, and the Miami Hurricanes. About a month ago, the Dolphins flew to London, played the Jets and lost, and they fired their coach. Two Saturdays ago, the Hurricanes played the Clemson Tigers and lost 58-0. to They fired their coach. Because in football, results and records, they matter, don't they? Results matter. Well, the same is true in our spiritual lives, too. Results matter. And here in Romans 12, Paul talks about a result that, that when we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, when we're, when we're committed to the request, it'll bring the correct results. And here in verse 1, we see the results. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. That's the result. When we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, we worship fully and truly our, our God. Worship means a believer's ministry and service. And true and proper describes it as being reasonable, being rational, being logical. And think about this. Once we have a good view of God's mercy that he's extended to us, what's the rational response? What's the reasonable response? It's to offer everything we have back to him. He, he graciously and miraculously saved us. And so what's our response? To give him our lives. That's the only rational response. Christ sacrificed his life for us on the cross. Shouldn't we be willing to live lives of sacrifice for him? We're lost without him. So that's the result, true and proper worship. And I was, as I was thinking about true and proper worship I came across, formulated in my mind, this is what I formulated. Genuine worship isn't determined by the number of services we go to. It's determined by the type of service we give our lives to. It's not determined by the number of services we go to. It's determined by the type of service we give our lives to. You know, we can spend a lot of time in our lives attending worship services and never truly worship God. Because true worship, it's not about the services we attend, it's the service we give our lives to. That's the result. That's the result that comes from, from following Paul's request. And when I look at my life, and when I think about my life, and I think about that's what God wants from me, when I really look hard, I come to the realization that my life needs some big-time renovation. I need some renovation because I don't always offer my body as a living sacrifice. I'm not always totally devoted to God. I'm not always truly and properly worshiping Him. And, you know, renovation's a big thing in the housing industry and the entertainment industry, right? Does anybody know who these people are right here? Anybody know who they are? Haley's hijacked my DVR at home. And it's full of all the, all the episodes of Fixer Upper. It's Chip and Joanna Gaines, this husband and wife designer builder team that travels all around Texas, all over Texas. And, they, and they're seeking to find the worst house on the block. And they renovate it into the greatest home on the block. 
and they do it time after time after time, and they make it look so easy, which is so disgusting, because it's not. But they, you know, in like, in 30 minutes, the house is done. Now, if you've ever been in part of a renovation, did that ever happen at your house? Never. Never. But, you know, renovation, it's, it's a popular thing. It, it's a profitable thing in today's world. And HGTV spends a lot of their programming talking about renovation, home renovation. But you know, before HGTV, Paul in Romans 12 talked a little bit about renovation here, about a spiritual renovation. The type of remodeling that's more profitable, but maybe not as popular. Look at verse 2. He lists two requirements for this, this spiritual remodeling in our lives. Says, Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. The first requirement, if we want to do this spiritual renovation, to, be, uh, to live a life of true and proper worship is this. Don't conform to the patterns of this world. Conform means to assume a certain form, to be molded into a pattern. It kind of communicates the idea that we're masquerading. We're pretending to be someone we're not. We're living a lie. We're putting on a good act. We're becoming behaviorally or socially similar similar to those around us. And the world describes our evil age or world system, this particular evil era we live in that values and beliefs are so opposed to what God values. So Paul says if believers are going to offer their bodies as a living sacrifice, they can't become similar behaviorally to the world in which they live in. They have to be different. They can't embrace the values, the beliefs, and the morals of this evil age we live in. We shouldn't comply with the sinful behavior of the world around us, but we should counter it with acts of holiness. We should strive to imitate Christ and never seek to impersonate our evil culture. I think that's what being, uh, not, not being conformed to the world is, to not imitate the world around us, but to strive to imitate Christ. So how, what are some ways Christians conform to the world around us today? I think the Apostle John mentions three of them in 1 John 2. 1 John 2 says this, it's here on the screen again, don't love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Some of the ways we conform to the world is found there in the lust of the flesh. We're being entertained and engaging in impurity or immorality. Impurity enters our hearts and minds through our eyes and our ears, and it exits through our mouths and the rest of our body parts. Entertainment will eventually lead to engagement. The lust of the flesh. Are we entertained by the sin around us? Do we engage in the sin around us? How about the lust of the eyes? We're being engrossed in materialism. We live in such a materialistic society. We worship and seek created things and not the God who created all things. We've got to have the latest and the greatest. 
because it'll bring us happiness. It'll bring us meaning of life. And ultimately, we know that material belongings never bring eternal satisfaction. But the lust of the eyes, we got to have this, we got to have that. We got to have what our neighbor has, what our friend has. We're engrossed in materialism. And finally, the pride of life. That's believing entitlement messages. We extremely overestimate our own importance, don't we? Like, it's a good thing God has me on his team because I'm pretty special. It's a good thing I'm part of God's family because I'm amazing. God doesn't need us. We over-exaggerate our importance. God owes me nothing. He doesn't need me. I owe him everything, and I need him desperately. We shouldn't seek to impersonate our evil culture, but strive to imitate Christ. Don't conform to the pattern of this world. That's the first requirement. The second one is this. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds. This portrays an ongoing action, a change in nature or essence, to renovate from the inside out. Renewing talks about reestablishing to something like new or an improved manner. And our mind is the complex mental state involving our beliefs, our feelings, our values, our way of thinking and understanding. John MacArthur in his commentary on Romans says this about renewal. The Holy Spirit achieves this transformation by the renewing of the mind, an essential and repeated New Testament theme. The outward transformation is affected by an inner change in the mind. And the Spirit means of transforming our minds is the Word. God's own Word is the instrument His own Holy Spirit uses to renew our minds, which in turn He uses to transform our living. The only way for our minds to be made like new, to be improved, to be renewed, is through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit uses God's word to renew our minds. And the renewing of our minds leads to the remodeling of our lives. It changes our lives. And it's important to have renewed minds because here in verse 2, Paul tells us that only renewed minds can discern and determine what God's will is, what his purpose for us is, what, what he desires from us. And he told us his will is good, it's perfect, it's pleasing. But if we don't have renewed minds, we'll never understand God's will. We'll never understand what his purpose and what his desires and his plan for us is. So that's the requirements if we're going to live this life of sacrifice, to live this life of worship. And so it leads us to, what's your response? What's my response? How do we respond to this amazing uh, two verses that we find here in Romans 12? Well, because of God's mercy, Paul makes it clear that a believer's reasonable response is to live a life of ministry to God. And I don't know about you, but as I read through this passage of Scripture, I often get hung up on the request, don't you? Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. It's kind of like we get hung up right there. Like, wow, that's pretty costly. That's pretty extreme, God. Got another idea? Anything else? And we miss the blessing or the result of what living a life of sacrifice is, and that's a life of true and proper worship. And so as we think about living a life of sacrifice, offering our bodies to God, being true and proper in our worship, 
Worship is more than lip service, it's life service. Worship is more than lip service, it's life service. And so the question we need to ask ourselves, I need to ask myself is, am I all talk? Or does my walk, does my walk show what Paul is requesting here? Does it match what Paul is requesting here in Romans 12, 1 and 2? Is my worship just lip service or is it life service? Because I want to be true and proper in my worship. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, you know, if I want to be true and proper, if I want to live a life of sacrifice to God, I need to do two things each and every day. If I want to properly respond and be totally devoted to God, I need to do do two things. The first thing is I need to pray. Each day I need to pray that God would transform me from the inside out, that he would use, the Holy Spirit would use his word to change my mind so it'll change my life. That I can't do it on my own. I I just can't say, you know, today I'm going to renew my mind. I'm going to work really hard. The Holy Spirit needs to use God's word to do the renewing. And so I need to pray that God God will renew my mind daily. As I spend time with him, as I spend time in his word, I need to pray that God will use the Holy Spirit to do that. And every day I need to purpose to look for opportunities to look for opportunities to serve those around me, with my, the people in my life, with my possessions, my position, and my plans. And my plans. And a life of sacrifice, a life totally devoted to God, is not a life of loss. It's a life of blessing. It's a life of fulfillment. It's not a privilege. It's a privilege. It's not a punishment. It's our passionate response to God's amazing mercy that he showed to us. So what's your response? Familiar verses that we all need to be faithful to. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look into your word today and to to be challenged by your word. We thank you for just this, this humbling two verses. I know it's for me. When we think about our life and we think about what we do with our life, Lord, I pray that that not only would you give us the desire to, to want to serve you with our lives, to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, to worship you truly and properly, but Lord, I pray that you would not just give us the desire, but, but help us to live it out. Help our worship not to be just lip service, but life service. Lord, help us to be, to be willing to, to sacrifice, to live a life of sacrifice, that the people in our lives will see that, that we're all about living for you, to encourage others to draw closer to you. Lord, help us to be passionate about worshiping you properly. That means dying to self and sacrificially loving and serving you. In Jesus' name.